Your word is transubstantiationalist. Uh, one more time? Transubstantiationalist. One more time. Transubstantiationalist. I want to buy a new word. Okay, enumerate. Are you a good speller or are you more like this person? It doesn't matter. Come enjoy the fun at your Spelling It Wrong, KMUW's Spelling Bee for grown-ups. Compete for prizes or just watch the fun. There will be pizza, beer, and yes, you can buy a new word. It's a fundraiser after all. It starts at 6 o'clock on September 8th at Wichita Brewing Company's event venue. Find out more or buy tickets at KMUW.org. My name is Anna Funder, and my latest book is Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. George Orwell's writing has always resonated with Anna Funder. During a particularly overwhelming period in her life, she returned to it for comfort and stumbled upon a key part of his history that was neglected by Orwell and his numerous biographers, the role his wife played in both his life and his writing. Anna Funder's resulting book, Wifedom, is a genre-blending reimagining of the life of George Orwell's first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy. Funder muses on the double burden of women's labor, even in today's society, and the magic trick of wifedom. I recently spoke with Anna Funder about Eileen's influence on her husband, how women have been written out of history, and more. I'm Beth Golay from KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network. This is Marginalia. So before we talk about George Orwell and his wife, Eileen, maybe we should define wifedom. You wrote, wifedom is a wicked magic trick we have learned to play on ourselves. I want to expose how it's done and so take its wicked tricking power away. Can you explain what you wanted to expose? Yes, it seemed to me, I started writing this book in 2017, a long time ago, at a time of peak wifedom, as I now think of it to myself. I had two teenagers and a preteen and they were about to get back to school and it seemed that somehow the world had made it my job to do all of the organizing and emails and uniforms and take the dog to the vet and deal with the depressed French exchange student we had staying and do all the shopping and I am married to an extremely nice um, kind of evolved human being. But somehow it appeared that most of this work turned out to be mine. It wasn't that my husband had asked me to do it. The world had sort of conspired against our best or more liberated intentions and given me this mother load of wifedom. And it wasn't until some way into writing this book, reading my way through Orwell, who's so good on how power works and who it works on, that I came across this well, this word occurred to me, wifedom, which I I now believe that I've kind of made up. But the the suffix dom comes from the old German tomb, and it appears in words like kingdom and freedom and wisdom and serfdom. And it connotes a state of being or an actual place, like a kingdom. And it seemed to me that it was useful to have a word that described the state of being a wife in terms of the work involved and the place in private life that that work 
takes place and is therefore often invisible to the outside world. And it's exactly that kind of unspoken, assumed division of labour that I wanted to write about in Wifedom by looking at this rather extraordinary and in some ways extreme marriage of 80 years ago. I want to talk about how this book started for you, because you write that you've always loved George Orwell's writing, and after reading everything you could get your hands on about him, you discovered there was a significant piece missing from accounts of his life, which was his wife and the role she played in his life. So talk to me about what fascinated you about Eileen O'Shaughnessy and her story. Yes. So I read my way through Orwell, um, who I've long loved as a writer. I'm a kind of a a lay student of 20th century tyranny. So my first book was about people who resisted the East German Stasi regime. And my second one was a novel based on true stories of the earliest Jewish resistors to Hitler, one of whom I had known as an older woman. And so Orwell has always been important in my thinking. So after I had read my way through Orwell and the biographies, the six major biographies of Orwell, I came across six letters from Orwell's first wife, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, to her best friend from her days at Oxford studying English in the 1920s. They were found in 2005 and they were published in 2013. So they don't form part of the biographies. And in the first one, Eileen is writing to her best friend almost six months after the wedding. And she writes to her, Dear Nora, I'm sorry I haven't written to you sooner, but we have quarrelled so continuously and really bitterly since the wedding that I thought I'd just write one letter to everyone once the murder or separation was accomplished. And on reading those words, I realised that this woman was funny and indeed hilarious, but also she's telling her best friend, we're quarrelling about these early days of wifedom. What is it that they're arguing about? And why does she want to kill Orwell, even in jest? So I turned back to the biographies, and when I read them, they're all written by men. And they say things about these early days of marriage, such as conditions were idyllic for him. Orwell had never been happier. So in between this man for whom conditions were idyllic, written in the passive voice, and the woman who was clearly working to make these conditions, I thought perhaps there's room for a book. Well, and I was struck by Eileen's occupation on the marriage certificate, where Orwell, I mean, he wrote author after his name, and on hers, it was just a line. And you wrote, she's starting to live the blank she's drawn on her marriage certificate. So, you know, you talk about Weaving in these letters, I mean, wifedom blends genres. It's it's part memoir, part fiction, part nonfiction. The sections in italics come directly from these letters that you just described that were discovered. And I'd love to know, you know, how you wove it all together. The fiction is clearly differentiated from the fact, but the reading of it is seamless. Was it difficult to do or, or did it feel like a natural process? That's such a lovely thing to say. I love to hear that. <laughs> uh, yes. When she drew the blank on the marriage certificate, you know, the day after the wedding, Orwell wrote to a friend, we were married in an Anglican church with the correct service, except that the minister left out obey, the word obey. And 
clearly Eileen arranged the marriage and she had her family vicar come and perform it. And she has clearly, in what I think of as the first act of the radical editing genius that would come to define her marriage, deleted the word obey. She's not going to have any of that. I looked up traditional vows. I was married in a church also, but I couldn't remember what I'd promised. And it turns out the man promises to love and cherish, but the woman has to promise to love, cherish and obey. So she wasn't having that. Yes, the form of the book is interesting. It would have been much easier for me to take these letters, which I was very fortunate to get permission to use in the work. And they are so wonderful, so moving, so hilarious and so acute. She was a really brilliant woman and a brilliant writer and very insightful about people, especially her husband. A novel would have been easier, but it really would have privileged my voice over hers and kind of devoured the material of this real life in a way it would not have made it possible for me to also, in an essay form, describe the ways in which history and the biographers and her husband have all used similar methods to erase her contribution to his life and to his work. I wanted to find a form that was able to show these, I call them sly ways in which actually many women in Orwell's life, foremost among them his wife, but also his suffragette and Fabian left-wing mother and aunt, and the many, many literary girlfriends that he had both before and during his marriage are all kind of cut out of the story as if to give the impression that Orwell formed himself alone and was a solitary genius who did his work alone. He owed nothing to these intelligent feminist women and also what he did to women, which was as you know from reading the book, rather extreme as well, was left out. So you end up with a portrait of a decent everyman genius who did everything alone, when in fact the reality is much more complex and much more interesting and much more interwoven with the women in his life. So the form was really tricky. It took me a long time to get, and I wanted it to be absolutely clear when you're reading essay and when you're reading what I'm calling a counterfiction to the fiction of omission, which is the received story that we know from the biographies. So the book is set wide margin when it's essay and then indented with a lovely dinkus at the beginning and the end and run ragged edge when you're in Eileen's mind as she writes her real letters to her best friend. I want to keep going with this erasure of these women for a moment, because understandably, you're quite critical of Orwell throughout the book, but you're also critical of his biographers for downplaying and and erasing Eileen's role in his life. And his biographers were men writing about a man. You wrote, the most insidious way the actions of women are omitted is by using the passive voice, and that patriarchy is a fiction by which all the main characters are male and the world is seen from their point of view. So talk to me about who gets to tell our story and how we're remembered, especially given the fact that after reading a biography of Joseph Conrad written by his wife, Orwell hissed, never do that to me, and forbade any biography of being written. Yes, Orwell really didn't want any biographies to be written about him. And on his deathbed, 
His second wife, who he married on his deathbed uh, and never lived with, Sonia Brownell, who was another brilliant editor, much younger than he, had given him a biography of Joseph Conrad written by Conrad's wife. And he did exactly that. He threw it across the room and his never do that to me. And Sonia protected his legacy very well and did refuse to let any biographers write a biography of him. The first biography was written by a very brilliant pair of American biographers called Stansky and Abrams in the late 60s and published in the early 70s. But she didn't give them permission to quote from any of his work. They did an astonishing job considering they couldn't quote from his work. He didn't want his private life to be examined or gone into. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And I have to say, I felt very wary and for a long time, I didn't want to intrude on that private life either. I felt I knew he would hate that to be done to him. It could cause him to roll around in his grave. And I felt as a writer, I would hate someone to do that to me as well. But then I realized that his private life was where Eileen lived. And we think about this very clearly today when we think about issues such as domestic so-called violence or coercive control, we understand that the private life of a man is a realm in which he was traditionally and often legally able to behave towards women in ways that would be considered indecent or even illegal outside of the house. But patriarchy depends on this double thing where you can be a decent man and behave indecently at home. The other thing was that I discovered in his last literary notebook written when he was very ill with the tuberculosis that would kill him in 1949, he wrote a passage in the third person, sort of as if to distance himself, I think, from feelings that were quite hard to own. And he wrote, the thing that they don't tell you about women as wives is about their disgusting untidiness and filthiness and their terrible devouring sexuality. He thinks that in every marriage of more than about a year, it's always the woman who wants sex more and more and always the man who's trying to get out of it, aware all the time that his wife is despising him for his lack of virility. It's such a disturbing and heartfelt and odd and misogynist thing to say that once I read that, I just thought, he only lived with one wife, and that wife was Eileen. So he's talking about her. And I just thought, how was it for her? I imagine the marriage involved too much cleaning and not enough or not good enough sex. I gave myself permission then, really, to go into what I think of as a kind of black box of his privacy and look for her and the conditions of her life there and get her out. I don't want to paint too grim a picture of it. I mean, I think that they really loved each other in a way, but it was an extremely complicated relationship in which she worked extremely hard and suffered a lot, but she made him the writer that he became. The biographers weren't the only writers to erase Eileen, you said that you were surprised to learn that she had traveled to Spain during the war because in Orwell's homage to Catalonia, she wasn't mentioned. You wrote, how is it that she remains invisible? I scanned through the electronic text of the book. Orwell mentions my wife 37 times. And then I see not once is Eileen named. No character can come to life without a name. But from a wife, which is a job description, it can all be stolen. 
So after all of your research into Orwell, does this still surprise you? (laughs) Yes. So these methods, these sort of sly methods of erasure are still in play today in the ways sometimes that we think and talk. Um, And the passive voice is foremost among them. So, you know, for instance, like I was saying before, conditions were idyllic for Orwell. That's a passive voice way of, instead of saying, Eileen was working very hard to keep the house, make the meals, look after the animals, edit his manuscripts, give him psychological mentoring, comfort, support, and so on. Conditions were idyllic. It's a sort of swift and dirty way of eliminating a woman. And Orwell writes a wonderful book about Spain, Homage to Catalonia, which I had read twice and devoured and enjoyed without really realising that Eileen was in Spain almost the whole time that he was there. She went a few weeks after he went to Spain at the end of 1936. She went in the beginning of 37, And she had a job at the headquarters in Barcelona of this little left-wing party, the Independent Labour Party, that he was fighting for. He was a militiaman off in the trenches of Aragon, bored out of his mind, literally sticking his head above the parapet, trying to find a bullet to hit him. He was so bored. Describing the discomforts of the trench, saying, you know, we all have lice crawling down the inseam of our pants and so on. But she had a job writing and editing and typing propaganda with an American, Charles Orr, who was an urbane and very lovely economist. So they had all the information from the front and were turning it into propaganda. She dealt with supply, organizing what the men at the front needed, all of their communications to and from home. She organized for her sister-in-law, a doctor, to drive a car full of medical supplies from London to Barcelona. And she knew that there were Stalinist spies in the office. She was really at the epicenter of everything. Charles Orr said, compared to all of the grifters and journalists and spies who frequented our office, Eileen was a superior person, something no biographer quotes. So she is getting Orwell's notes from the front that he's writing on scraps of paper and envelopes and notebooks and typing them into something that will form the basis for his book, Homage to Catalonia. At the end of the time in Spain, Stalin actually has a kind of purge. There is gunfighting outside her office. Orwell is passing by the hotel. This is just to give you a little taste of how she is erased from that book when she's at the epicenter, if I may. He's walking past on the Ramblas in Barcelona and he notices this gunfire breaking out and he makes the mistake kind of innocent in a way of running away from the hotel and Eileen's office, which were only about 100 yards apart, down to the other end of the Ramblas to a Pum building. A Pum was the sister party of the ILP that he was fighting for. And he goes there because he wants to find a weapon or be involved in the fighting somehow, leaving her at the epicenter of this fight. Instead of going back up to try and see how she was when the fighting died down, he goes out to dinner with a male friend at the male friend's hotel. And when he comes back that evening, he writes on a single page in in Homage to Catalonia, I called my wife at the hotel. I didn't manage to make contact with her, but I did manage to make contact with John McNair. Um, I'll tell you who he was in a minute. With John McNair, who told me nobody had been hurt, everything was all right. 
So what is actually happening there is Orwell calls the hotel room where Eileen is staying. She's not there. So he calls her office, but he can't say that she's calling her office because he can't say that she has a job, let alone a job at the political headquarters of the party that he's fighting for. And he reaches John McNair because John McNair is the head of that party and so her big boss. And when John McNair says everything's all right, nobody had been hurt, nobody is Eileen. So these are the ways in which he goes to considerable lengths to disguise what she was doing in Spain and the big role that she played. Nobody is her. And as you say, I looked through the electronic text at the end of writing the book and saw that the words my wife are used 37 times, but not once is she named. So without a name, nobody can come to life in a book and they certainly can't be at the epicenter of the action. And then in order to get him out of Spain, risk her own life and save his. So she played an enormous role. And I had to say, I did wonder later back in the UK at this little decrepit cottage in a village outside of London, with no electricity and one cold tap where they were living, I did say to myself, I wonder what she thought as she was typing and editing this book, which she had informed by a man whose life she'd just saved and out of which she had been written, you know? Hmm. You know, in this book, you were able to weave in pieces of your own life and you included an image from your office whiteboard where your 10-year-old daughter wrote her wish list. In addition to camp and clothes and money, she wrote medical attention. And I also saw pony on there. And then earlier in the book, you wrote about visiting with your 16-year-old about your work and Orwell and the Me Too movement. And you wrote that if your three children were going to emerge from childhood to see you for what you were, you would have to become visible to yourself. Do they see you for who you are and do you? Uh, the reasons that there are small bits of my life and sometimes the lives of my friends in the book is because I wanted to bring this issue into the present tense. I think that um, self-effacement is a feminine virtue in patriarchy. And we all live in patriarchy. As far as we know, there is no other place. Uh, self-effacement is a virtue. So we tend to do things like, say, we organized the camp or the doctor's visit or the holiday or the Thanksgiving dinner or whatever it is, when actually we is me. It's usually the woman in a heterosexual relationship, in my experience and the experience of my friends, who's often doing all of that work. So we tend to generalize or put things into the passive tense. The reason that my daughter when she was 10, that's still on my whiteboard. <laughs> she wrote me this very funny list. And it's there to remind me, I suppose, of things that I might be blind to as well and things that I might not be in my own wifedom as I sit in my writing life as a writer. And writers are, in a way, greedy people. We are greedy for time and we're greedy for experience and we need to make ourselves central in some way strong enough so that we feel that we have something to say in this story. And my daughter at 10 wanting camp and money and a pony and medical attention, the medical attention is there to remind me of things I might not see and to remind me that I too may be a greedy artist, you know? Yeah. 
I listen to books as I read them, and I did that with Wifedom. And it seemed to me that each format, you know, reading it on paper or listening on audio, it had a leg up on the other. Because if you read on paper, you have the benefit of of the photos and quotation marks and, and whatnot. But if you listen on audio, those quotation marks were illustrated, if you will, through a narrator. Like you would get a character who would provide you an accented Lydia voice or, or Nora. We would get different voices to say who said the different words. So I'm wondering, is there a benefit or a pitfall for one over the other? I mean, I had the benefit of, of doing both simultaneously. But I do wonder, is the listener missing something by not reading it on a page? And is the one reading it on the page missing something by not listening to the audio? That's such a good question. First, I have to thank you for paying such close <laughs> attention to, to wifedom in both of these forms. I think there are different experiences. I haven't myself listened all the way through to the audiobook yet because I've been on this crazy six-week wonderful tour, but I have listened to a bit of it. Um, on the page, it's very clear when you're moving from essay to fiction. And I know where Eileen was when she was writing these letters to Nora and I know that she was leaving certain things out, not telling her best friend, for instance, that her husband was off with another woman and that he had wanted her to know that, you know, not telling her things. So I can kind of be in her mind and represent what I actually know to be true as she's writing those letters. So try and bring her back to life that way. But in the audiobook, the essay parts are in an Australian accent like mine and the Eileen parts are in this absolutely beautiful cut glass British voice. So there's two different actors reading the audiobook. And I think there's something so gloriously kind of operatic and conversational about that. I can't take any credit for the audiobook, but I think it's a very beautiful thing. With the with the printed book, you do get these photographs, which I think are very lovely and really enrich the text and you also get the last 80 pages of the book which are in Orwell's point of view after the relationship is over and he's extraordinarily ill and he's trying to write 1984 and what you get with all of that in the book is 40 pages I know how imposing that sounds but 40 pages of end notes so that you can see things that you don't see in the audiobook, like Eileen wrote a poem before she met Orwell called End of the Century 1984. And that poem is in my end notes. And so you get this kind of stereoscopic thing with the book in a way because you get all of this evidence that supports what's in the book. The book is meant to be inhaled. The book is meant to be an experience. But I want it to rest on this very solid foundation that if anybody's interested, they can read in those notes. So they don't appear, obviously, in the audiobook. So I think your experience of doing both is probably the most full one you could possibly have. <laughs> so you started this book because you love Orwell through his writing. And then you discovered, as Orwell put it, a lie that you wanted to expose. How do you feel about Orwell today? I am asked this question a lot. I think his work is fun and beautiful and enormously important. 
especially Animal Farm and 1984. We live in an age of rising authoritarian and totalitarian governments around the world and an age of blanket surveillance. So it's very important to read those books and they are often on school syllabuses all over the world. And they're enjoyable and astonishing and important. And it adds something to those books to see the woman whose political nous informed them, who edited them, and whose idea it was to write Animal Farm as a novel and a fable instead of, as Orwell wanted to do, an essay critical of Stalin. So I really hope that this book, Wifedom, not only shows us how women today as then our work and lives can be made invisible, but also the enormous contribution of this particular brilliant woman to these very important books in the 20th century. And Orwell was a complicated man. To think that a kind of decent, everyman, underdog, vanilla kind of guy is going to write a book as paranoid, as sadistic, as violent and misogynist as 1984, for all its other virtues, is kind of naive, it must be possible to do the double think of keeping in mind the man and the wife, the work and the life, and appreciating all of those. I mean, none of us are flawless. And many writers, me included and him included, although I would never put myself on the same level in any way, we write out of our flaws. That gives us insight into lots of things that people want to read about safely between the covers of a book. And I think that we need to keep both of those things in mind. Well, the book is Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life. Anna Funder, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for a brilliant conversation. That was Anna Funder, author of the book Wifedom, which was published by Knopf. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. Want to learn how to be a master of business without going back to school? Listen to the Planet Money MBA. No suits, no PowerPoints, just the secrets of business school delivered straight to your ears. Every Wednesday till Labor Day on Planet Money from NPR.